Welcome to Fantastic History. I'm Clay. I'm Sarah. We are a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. Whoop, whoop. So today, Sarah, I have a true crime <gasps> story to tell you about. Oh, boy. And you may have heard it. Okay. And our listeners may have heard it as well. It's not necessarily on the obscure side. Okay. But it's a very interesting one that uh, I hadn't heard of um, too much of leading up to uh, doing this research. So I wanted to share it. Okay. And I wanted to start off by asking, have you ever seen the movie Strangers on a Train? No. Okay. I'm familiar with the premises because there was an episode of CSI based on Strangers on a Train. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, if you are not if you are not familiar with that movie out there, um, it's about two men who meet on a train and discuss the idea of a perfect crime. Both men have someone in their lives that they would like to disappear. Mm-hmm. So what if the two strangers swapped murders? There would be no known motive, no relationship to the uh, murderee, etc. In the movie, this doesn't go out. This doesn't go over well because one of them was not serious about the arrangement. They were just, you know, they're just playing along. Oh yikes! With with, with the uh, <laughs> with the conversation, like yeah, that'd be fun. Oops. And the other one was quite serious. Oh, with the idea. Dear, that is a bummer. Well, it's Alfred Hitchcock, so you got to throw in some. I was just about to ask you if it was Hitchcock. Yeah. yeah. It is. Oh, God. But at least the question, is there such a thing as a perfect crime? Well, two young men in the mid-1920s thought so. And they were, they thought that they were brilliant and cunning enough to pull it off. So many criminals think that. It's, it's quite the trope. Yeah, it, it, it sure is. So this is the, um, this is the murder orchestrated by Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. Okay. Now, they both grew up in some of the most affluent and wealthy families in Chicago. Gross. But they were also very different. Nathan was a shy and bullied child, Mm. whereas Richard was a natural extrovert. Mm -hmm. But he was forced to put studies ahead of his social life. Right. One other thing they had in common was that they were both very intelligent, at least academically. They Mm -hmm. both excelled. In school and studies. Both graduated early from high school and went to the University of Chicago. This is where they met when Leopold was 15. Oh, my. And Loeb was 14. Wow. And it didn't take long for their friendship to grow into infatuation on the part of Nathan. Ah. And he quickly fell in love with Richard. And it made sense. Loeb was a charming, humorous, and friendly guy. Right. Whereas... Uh, Leopold was off-putting and arrogant and aloof. (laughs) So I guess opposites attracted. Oh, yeah. But while they were both intelligent, they'd also been pushed in that direction from a very strict upbringing. So it makes sense that they had a shared mutual interest in unorthodox thrill-seeking. These dangerous adventures involved cheating, vandalism, stealing cars, and more. So when you say cheating, like academically? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, like uh, creating um, their version of Cliff Notes. Oh, gotcha. Stuff like that. Breaking the rules mm-hmm. Okay. in general. It was a way for them to feel alive, especially Richard. These adventures fueled his narcissism mm. that he was some master criminal. And it gave him a lot of pleasure. Uh-huh. Like literally, it right. gave him pleasure 
to, you know, do these illegal things. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we're all very impressed. <laughs> Whereas Nathan, however, didn't feel such enthusiasm for vandalism, but rather adored Richard's company. Right. But he had a fantasy of being a mighty protector. And Richard fit into that fantasy as his adoring master. Oh, okay. And um, we'll get it. This is like a a Whitney Houston, Kevin Costner situation. Like bodyguard is is kind of. I suppose so. There's a lot of psychology when it comes to um, Nathan's part, which we'll get into a Mm -hmm. little bit more um, and not too long. But uh, they both were coming at it from different perspectives, but they both Mm -hmm. really got got a lot out of rule breaking right sort okay. of flaunting their in, their intellect oh you gotcha. know, like i, I yeah. can get away with these things and i'm i'm rebelling mm-hmm. against against the system that i have been brought up in right extremely strict oh yeah upbringing i'm sure so in 1921 richard announced that he was transferring to the university of michigan nathan decided to follow along but this proved to be a mistake richard joined zeta beta tau and his fraternity brothers did not like his friendship with Nathan. Why? Well, because he was a shy nerd. He was a loner and a misanthrope, but he was also a suspected homosexual, which oh. did not go over well at the time. Well, I mean, yeah, 100 years ago, I guess not. Yeah. And so their friendship just drifted apart. Oh. And Nathan returned to the University of Chicago the following year where he excelled academically and socially. <laughs> crazy right isn't that interesting wow he was joining clubs he was getting into his own fraternity and he became a professional ornithologist despite enjoying the study as a weekend hobby wow and that's a bird watcher right yeah okay yeah he was bird watching on on the weekends and sort of and he wrote like academic papers oh his studies but he was doing it as a hobby it wasn't even part of his studies right his academic studies and he graduated at the age of 18 Wow. With plans to become a lawyer. Wow. Meanwhile, a Rick- bird lawyer? <laughs> Does he practice bird law? I don't think he ever practiced bird law. Oh, that's a bummer. Uh, meanwhile, Richard also graduated at the age of 18, which was the youngest graduate in the history of the University of Michigan. Dang. And though excelling at his, his studies at well, he really didn't have a drive or plans for the future. <laughs> right. That sounds about right. Yeah. It's, it's a bit ironic that Richard became the aloof one. Right, yeah. Right. They kind of switched. However, fate drew them back together in September 1923 when Nathan was taking classes in Chicago and the two reignited their relationship. Okay. Nathan had become obsessed with the philosophy of Nietzsche, specifically the <sighs> mythical Superman. Oh, God. Had you ever heard of this before? Yeah. Eugenics? Have I heard of eugenics? <laughs> yeah, I've heard of it. Oh, gross. I really hadn't looked too much into it, personally. Oh, God. But the Superman, as as uh, it was explained in, in my source, um, one who stood outside the law beyond any moral code and could do whatever he pleased, even murder, because mor- morality did not matter, only the Superman's pleasure. Oh, that kind of Superman. I yes. see. I thought you were talking about. Well, I'm sure it all plays know. together. I'm sure it does. Building blocks. Yeah. But you can sort of see that. Um, you can sort of see how that played into Nathan's uh, protector role. I just anybody in the history of time who has been into Nietzsche is the 
biggest asshole. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be that way. 100% of the time. So it was this new philosophy mixed with his, um, you know, that, 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 that attitude of mm-hmm. his, uh, mixed with Richard's uh, pleasure of committing these crimes and his own fantasy of being a master criminal. It's all these things that sort of combined um, when they began to discuss what would be the perfect crime. And soon these talks formed into a plan to commit that crime and to never be caught. Because I guess that's the idea. You commit a crime, you don't want to be caught. Well, yeah, if it's imperfect if you get caught. Exactly. Unless you planned to be caught. Oh, God. See uh, seven. Oh, I would love to, actually. Can we do that after this? Sure. I love that movie. So just a, a, a bit of a warning. Um, their plan is is gruesome. Yeah. Okay. And, and a bit upsetting. Mm. So uh, just be aware of that as we as we move forward. Because their plan was to kidnap a child. Okay. No. No, I'm out. You're out? I'm out. Goodbye. Okay. Well, those of you who are still along with us, the plan was to kidnap a child and demand a ransom, but leave no clues for the police to identify them. And they would take the ransom, but their plan, uh, un- uh, it, it, it was it was supposed to be a ransom kidnapping, mm-hmm. but underneath their plan was to kill the child. <sighs> they planned the kidnapping. They planned the ransom. They planned fake identities, the rental of a car that they would do all this in. Every meticulous detail to avoid detection and trick any detective who they came up against. Mm. They even wrote a ransom note before they even knew who the victim was going to be. And they used a ransom note in a comic book as a guide. For God's sake. Detective Comics. Oh, Batman, why? So the day the murder comes... The two drive around uh, Kenwood in Chicago, a neighborhood just north of the university, looking for a victim. They had several candidates in mind whose families were wealthy enough to pay a large ransom, but they were not able to find one of them in an opportunity to approach them. Mm -hmm. Uh, They scoured the neighborhood for hours until they came across Richard's cousin. What the hell? Yeah. So this this, this was Bobby Franks who is um, their victim, Mm. who was 14 Mm. at the time. Richard convinced him to take a ride with them, and once he was in the car, Richard killed him. Immediately? Pretty much, In the car? Yeah. Good God. Yeah, he killed him right there um, with blunt force trauma. Oh. They then drove south to Wolf Lake, where they disposed of the body in a drainage pipe that they had, you know decided on before yeah nathan was familiar with the area of this particular hiding spot because he did a lot of bird watching around the lake for god's sake first of all perfect crime don't take one of your own family members dumbass second of all don't dump the body where people know you go all the time so if you uh, you're starting to catch on gee whiz okay they had also removed bobby's clothing to avoid uh, identification and they used um, hydrochloric acid to disfigure Bobby. Oh, my God. Because they didn't want him to be identified when he was found. Oh, my God. But their plan, their, their thought was, he'll, he'll never be found. This is a drainage pipe. 
in the middle of basically nowhere, mm-hmm. who is ever going to find him? <laughs> if they ever do find him in years, they'll never know who it is. Right. Uh-huh. So this was this was their master plan. Cool. So their perfect crime had been committed, uh, but had not go- gone fully according to plan. For one, they had planned on doing the murder together by strangulation uh, with both boys holding either end of a rope or cord. For what reason? Well, they wanted both of them to be to commit the murder. They didn't want one of them to do it and the other one to be an accomplice. They wanted both of them to be the one who did it. But if it's a perfect crime and you're never going to get caught, why does that matter? You know what I mean? I guess it's just in your head, right? I guess. I mean, it's not, but okay. Yeah. And because of this, they had not anticipated that there was going to be blood in the car. Uh, Okay. And there was. Cool. Couple of smart guys, huh? And this was in a rental car. (laughs) Right? (laughs) With their actual real name on the lease, I'm assuming. No. Oh, well. They had had a fake identity when they rented the car. Right, of course. But they they had to clean the car before returning it. It's just like Pulp Fiction. Well, yeah, they had to call the wolf. (laughs) While they were cleaning the car in Nathan's garage, they were interrupted by the family driver. (laughs) Okay. uh, Sven England. Poor Sven. Uh, They they told him that they had spilled some wine and they were trying to clean it up before returning to Nathan's parents. Sir. Uh, But England recognized the odd behavior of of them. And because Nathan never did any physical labor. Uh, Of course not. So he was cleaning a car. Uh Uh-huh. Come on. Um, and the fact that this was a very nice green sports car, um, you know, it was eye catching. Yeah. Really guys, really? Oh my. Oh my. Now here's, now here's, here's something interesting their plan for the ransom. Mm -hmm. It was complicated, but very meticulous. Uh, it, it was almost like a Riddler type scheme. Sure. They had sent a letter that night to arrive at the Franks' home by 8 a.m. the next morning. Mm. They then called the Franks' home, speaking to uh, the mother uh, and telling them that Bobby had been kidnapped and they would contact them in the morning. When the letter arrived in the morning, it explained how much money they wanted and how it was to be packaged. Mm -hmm. And then later that morning, a call would instruct Bobby's father, Jacob Franks, Franks, to get into a cab that would take him... Um, on their way. Um, and and the plan was that uh, the call would tell uh, Jacob to get in a car and it would take him to a drugstore. And he would wait in the drugstore for another call. And that call would send him to a train station to board the 3 o'clock train. Mm-hmm. And once he was on the train, he would find a letter waiting for him on board in the box for the telegraph blanks. Uh-huh. And this letter would instruct him to throw the ransom out the window of the train at a specific location where the boys would be waiting to retrieve the ransom. And so they'd be able to get it and get out before Bob, uh, before uh, Mr. Franks would be able to tell the police, mm-hmm. here's where I had to throw it out. Right. This is goofy. So that was their plan because they figured there's no way for anyone to track them. Right. With all of this going around. Right. So they had sent the letter and they called. Mm. So then everything. So then everything after that was still up in the air, right? So the morning of the ransom, while Richard was putting the letter, he he had boarded the train, and he was putting the letter in the telegraph box, Nathan called a cab for Mr. Franks and then called him 
He introduced himself as George Johnson and told him that the yellow cab would arrive at his house shortly and to get in. Franks asked if he could have more time and was told, no, you must leave immediately. Franks did as requested and was taken to the pharmacy, but the caller had not told him to wait inside the pharmacy. Oh my God. So he was just left on the sidewalk Mm -hmm. with no further instructions. The boys were on their way to the next location where they were going to make that phone call because they were like making phone calls from different places. Right. But it was in this moment as they were driving to that next location, less than 24 hours after the murder, that they had discovered that their plan, their meticulous, carefully orchestrated, perfect crime was already ruined. (laughs) Good. The headline of the Chicago Daily Journal that morning, Bobby's (gasps) body was found. Oh my God. That fast. That fast. Get him, Bobby. Okay. So the boys were stunned <laughs> because they had they had <sighs> they had killed him and put him in the drain pipe, like like late late evening, right? And then by morning, <laughs> there wasn't the paper. <laughs> so they had not expected the body to be found at all. Uh huh. Much less immediately. <laughs> They realized now that Franks must know it was Bobby and the whole exercise was a waste, but Nathan urged Richard to see it through. So they did. They called the pharmacy, but Franks was not there (laughs) because he had not been told to go inside the pharmacy to wait. That's such a basic part of the instructions. Yeah. Really? You should mention that. Okay. And their, their suspicion was correct. In fact, Franks had been informed of the body just before receiving the call from Nathan. <gasps> oh my God. And that is why he said, can, can you give me some time before I get in the cab? Uh-huh. Because he had just received this news. Right. So his mind must have been like, what is happening? Right. So wait, in the phone call, they didn't say that they'd kidnapped his son? No, they did. Well. and But, but he got a, but, but so, someone had come up to him and said, hey, they found a body. They believe it's Bobby. And then right after being told that your your son's body has likely been found, a kidnapper calls and said, we have your son. Oh. If you want to ever see him again. So he didn't know for sure that Bobby was dead, but just that they had found. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that he thought that it was his son that had been found, uh-huh. but held on to like a hope. You would. I mean, you would. But, of course. Yeah. Oh, God. Now, they had planned the perfect crime. So even though the body was found, well, there was no way that they were going to be caught. Right? (laughs) Uh Well, (laughs) in fact, police found a pair of glasses at the scene. Are you kidding me? Which Nathan had dropped unknowingly. Meanwhile... Richard had decided to engage with two fraternity alumni who were working with the Chicago Daily News on the crime and even helped them out with some investigating into it by finding the drugstore that Mr. Franks had supposedly um, was supposed to have entered mm-hmm. uh, but didn't because he knew that they had called the drugstore mm-hmm. and asked for him. He wasn't there. Right. So he... Um, he was helping these guys 
find the drugstore that he was supposed to have gone into by asking the clerk, hey, did you receive a call from Mr. Franks? And he, until he found the one that he, they did because he knew which one it was. Oh. So this is a case of like the criminal buddying up with the cops. They love to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, Nathan was really worried that their plans were unraveling. Uh, I think Richard was a little bit cocky at this time. Yeah, that does sound like him. They were both very cocky. Yeah. But I think Nathan was a bit worried right now because things were just not going according to plan. Uh Uh-huh. So they agreed on an alibi to cover one another. Okay. An airtight alibi that neither one of them would break. Uh Uh-huh. If it came to that. Yeah, sure. Then on May 25th, police knocked on Nathan's door. (laughs) So they were questioning anyone who frequented the area that Bobby was found. <laughs> you uh-huh. caught on to this already. Yep. And he was frequenting that area. Good Lord. Now, the questioning was routine, and Nathan did not suspect that they had any suspicion of him specifically. But four days later, police once again knocked on the Leopold's door. And this time they asked, do you wear glasses? <laughs> Got him. Indeed, they had traced the glasses back to Leopold. At his home, police found an illegal handgun and an aggressively written love letter to Richard Loeb. Hello. Richard was picked up for questioning not long after, but they both stuck to their alibis. And they were both cool as cucumbers. Uh Uh-huh. Especially Nathan. Perhaps he thought he was now... Nietzsche's Superman. But there was one problem. (laughs) At least. At least. Their alibi was that they had picked up some girls and had spent the evening with them. Mm -hmm. The the evening of the murder. Yeah. What are their names? (laughs) Well, you know. uh, You wouldn't know them. They go to another school. Right. Oh, yeah. Of course. But the detective questioning them, whose name is Richard Crow, well, he knew that they were in a relationship. Mm Mm-hmm. So there he was Oh, because they found that letter. Yeah. Right. So he was a he was suspicious I'm of their alibi. Pretty sure you don't like girls, pal. As they continued questioning the boys and figuring out more details, things to be- began to unravel. They discovered that the ransom note had been written on the same style typewriter that Richard wrote used his notes. For God's sake. They couldn't find the typewriter though because Richard had tossed it into a river. <laughs> That's normal and fine. Perfect. That's just something you wouldn't do if you were like guilty at all. Hey, you're done with your typewriter. You toss it into the lake. Right. Yeah. That's what you do with them. Mm-hmm. There was another detail. When Richard picked up Nathan, this was the day of the of the murder. Mm-hmm. Richard picked up Nathan, and Nathan had handed his uh, car over to the family driver Sven England. Mm-hmm. We just talked about a, a few minutes ago. Oh yeah. Because his brakes were squealing. He wanted he wanted Sven to look at it, okay, and fix it. This is when England saw first saw the green car that Richard was driving, mm-hmm. and and then both boys left in Nathan's car, or sorry, they both left in Richard's car, leaving Nathan's car in the garage that night. But in their alibi, they said they were driving around with the girls in Nathan's car. Okay. When uh, Crow revealed this detail to the boys, they denied it call the chauffeur mistaken mm. or a liar i'm sure they said much worse than that possibly but less than one hour later richard called crow back and confessed yeah with precise details of the real events 
Crow confronted the smoking, confident Nathan Leopold. <laughs> but when Crow mentioned stopping to eat hot dogs and root beer after they killed Bobby, <gasps> his face dropped. Because <laughs> who would know that? And he said, "He, I can just imagine he just took another, um, t- took a bit more of the uh, cigarette and mm-hmm. said, well, I'm surprised that dick is talking now. He thought I thought he would stand till hell froze over. Wow. And with that, Nathan gave his account of the real events of the night. Both boys claimed that the, that the other was the mastermind and murderer. Well, you would, yeah. Themselves just building a willing accomplice looking for a thrill. It's still not a good look, honestly. No. Mm-hmm. Well, this became sort of the 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 the, the you know, this went to trial. Of course, yeah. Their trial was a media spectacle. It was labeled the trial of the century. The oh. thir- probably <laughs> Every- the third or fourth trial of the century at that time. <laughs> and it was only the 1920s. Yeah. Um, and th- and this was sort of the thing that, that captured the media was these affluent, super wealthy, super intelligent, had their whole lives ahead of them, could do anything they wanted, really. <sighs> whack, whack, whack. Okay. You know, they they, they, they brilliant... Graduated from college at the mm. age of 18. Woo-hoo. Seemed to have their whole lives ahead of them, just ready to do whatever they wanted. Well, and but and, that's what they did. And this is what they did with so. it. They killed, they killed this kid. And not killed uh. them because, not committed a murder because they wanted to hurt someone or wanted revenge or, you know, they were, mm-hmm. they were cross lovers or anything like that. They just did it for the thrill. Just because they're garbage. Just to show off. Yeah. And people were just like, it's crazy. Yeah. Their defense retained famous lawyer Clarence Darrow. Oh, wow. Okay. Both Richard and Nathan pled guilty on oh. his advice in order to for their fate to be in the hands of one judge instead of a jury. Oh, yeah. And Darrow intended to save their lives. That was his goal. And his closing argument lasted 12 hours. Jiminy Jones. Where he gave an impassioned plea against capital punishment and uh, pushing the idea that upbringing and psychology control human behavior, not simply arbitrarily choosing to do right or wrong. I mean, yes, perhaps, but there's a lot of people with that psychology and upbringing who don't murder little kids for fun. That's true. But his plea convinced the judge not to sentence the boys to death. Are you kidding me? He did not. And if he did, it would have been the first time in, I think, Illinois history that under the two underage, that that, that underage kids were um, given the the death penalty. But I thought they were 18 already. Well, I did a little bit more research. And as my understanding was, um, prior to the Vietnam War, Oh. 18 was underaged. Okay. But when you need some bodies yeah. on the ground, yeah. 18 looks pretty good. Right. So, yeah. Cool. Now, here's a fun fact. Darrow actually uh, also defended a man named John Scopes in the state of Tennessee versus Scopes trial, where Scopes was accused of the crime of teaching evolution in school. Oh, yeah. I'm familiar with this. Which was illegal in Tennessee at the time. Mm-hmm. He lost... But the, tri- the trial was so widely publicized that it changed public opinion on the topic across America as a whole. Hell yeah. So 
It's a good lawyer to have on your side. Yeah, a very famous lawyer. I mean, I recognize that name, and the, this is from 100 years ago, so yeah. mm-hmm. pretty big deal. So in the end, in 1924, they were both given life in prison plus 99 years. Okay, I'll allow for that. Both were held at Joliet before being transferred to Stateville Penitentiary in 1931. Richard was killed by a fellow inmate in Good. 1936. Good. Meanwhile, Leopold was a model prisoner hmm. and actually was granted parole. What? In 1958. Sorry. I don't know how that works with life sentence plus 99 years. Well, there's, it, I mean, the, the number doesn't matter. It's life with or life without. If you get life without parole... Plus 99 years, you're never coming out no matter what. But you can get a life sentence with a parole hearing every 10 years or whatever number. Like that would be part of your sentencing, whether or not you'd be eligible for parole. It sounds like they could have given him life plus life and it wouldn't have mattered. Right. Yeah. You can, I mean, you can do 20 life sentences, but you have parole every 10 years. So you still might get out in 10. Hmm. Yeah. Well, he died in 1971 of a heart attack. Good. So Sarah. Yeah. You know a lot about true crime. Okay, you've sure. Heard, you, 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 you've, uh, you listen to podcasts. I've heard my fair share. I've read my fair share. Watched my fair share, probably, yeah. Does the perfect crime exist? Considering how many unsolved murders there are, yeah, sure. Jack the Ripper, perfect crime. Yeah. That, Especially considering the fact that it's been over 150 years. It will never be solved. Yeah. Completely got away with it. A hundred percent. We will never know who did it, even though those were gruesome, horrible. There was a ton of evidence and it was just mishandled by the cops. Sure. I'd say those murders were a perfect crime. JonBenet Ramsey has never been solved. I mean, they're still trying to work on it now. Perfect crime. They've never figured it out. Everybody's too busy pointing fingers at everybody else and... So, I mean, yeah, obviously. Well, do you think those those are instances of the perfect crime falling into their lap or them meticulously planning something so perfect that even Sherlock Holmes would be confounded? There's no time Sherlock Holmes would be confounded. So if you're going to, if that's, <laughs> sorry, if that's the framework, then no, the perfect crime does not exist. <laughs> but um, with him sadly being fictional, um, I don't think planning has really been, I mean, with a lot of this stuff, I mean, like with Jean Benet and with Jack the Ripper, both, like those are both, you know, two very famous examples of, Cases being mishandled, evidence being hidden away or destroyed or, you know, everybody's, you know, pointing fingers at everybody else so busy, you know, doing that, that they're not going to do their job. So I hear you. I think any crime can be solved in the right hands. Okay. Now, and the lovely bones, I don't know if you've interacted with the book or the movie at all of that, but it was, um, an icicle you Mm. stab somebody with an icicle and so the murder weapon melts and they're never able to find it and so there you go i mean from that and i think that was even a joke on the office (laughs) probably dwight i would imagine (laughs) yeah stabbing somebody with an icicle yeah 
Well, if only they had thought of that. I know. Foolish. Well, Sarah, thank you for listening. (laughs) You're welcome. And thank all of you for listening as well. Hope you liked that story, found it interesting. And if you did, hey, why don't you rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe as well so you can see all of our episodes coming out as they come out. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram for more content. We are Fantastic HPod on both. You can also shoot us an email at fantastichistorypod at gmail.com. And don't forget we have stickers and some other merch. Mm-hmm. You can find them in the show notes. And hey, until next time, have a good day.